ask me how it is that I dare to take a side You say I loathe myself, pointing out that you have lied You say it's tribal warfare, but I disagree for the dynamics of the situation Are not difficult to see On the one side is the fighter jet, on the other is the stone On the one side is the slave, on the other is the throne For the many there are checkpoints, while foreign soldiers rule the streets For the one side there is victory, but the people don't accept defeat the word you need to know is occupation The very definition of a land without a nation And if peace is what you're after, then let us not deceive It'll come on the day the tanks return to Tel Aviv hey, Welcome to Truth Jihad Radio I'm Kevin Barrett, bringing you great guests every week Usually about five guests per week Talking about the issues that aren't being properly covered and covering the perspectives on all of the important issues that are not being attended to. And boy, the lies just keep piling up. Uh, maybe the biggest pile of stinking lies today is piling up in occupied Palestine, where the truth is being systematically not just suppressed, but inverted. The uh, defenders are being portrayed as the aggressors. The aggressors are being portrayed as the defenders. Everything is upside down, backwards, topsy-turvy. The Zionist-dominated mainstream American media is lying even more outrageously now than they have just about any other time. It's hard to even find comparisons. But the people are waking up thanks to social media and thanks to brave individuals like my guest today, Charles Carlson. He is a leader of the movement of Christians to start waking up and figuring out what's really going on over in Palestine and stopping the, what do we call it, the fascist onslaught of Christian Zionism, which is, is one of the most pathetic and yet dangerous uh, movements that's probably ever existed. And it's, it's very, very important for people to stand up and, and try and turn that one around. And Charles Carlson is right in the forefront of people doing that. So, hey, uh, welcome, Chuck. How are you? Uh, thank you, Kevin. I'm happy to be on. And, yeah, good uh, well said, what's going on in the Middle East is outright lying and turning right to wrong and wrong to right. So it is as you say. Well, thank you. Yeah, your, your website is We Hold These Truths, which is on the web at whtt.org. Uh, how long have you been working on this issue? We uh, started since I went to Gaza myself uh, in 2002 in the spring and uh, saw their rocket attacks, excuse me, I saw missile attacks from Israel upon uh, the Gazans, witnessed them personally, just happened to be lucky enough or unlucky enough to have, see this, and of course I've never been able lucky to Lucky enough it. to get missed by the missiles. And lucky enough to be missed. Uh, the Zionist uh, shelling. <laughs> the, yeah, the, they did it from Apache helicopters that they parked basically overhead, and they happened to park them over where I was. So I actually was able to hear the, the sound of the Apaches and watch them uh, discharge the missiles, though it was at night. And then the next day I went and walked in a funeral procession where they buried four people, and there were 40 that went to the hospital at night. So that was 2002, 12 years ago. And uh, this uh, attack on the Gazans has been going on on and off ever since then. So, And it's uh, completely hidden from us. And, of course, uh, the most complicitous group, I would say, in America who who we have a chance to change is, of course, Christians who have become known as Christian Zionists 
by virtue of the way they've skewed scripture or the way it's been skewed for them to cause them to believe that Israel is the fulfillment of biblical prophecy and therefore has to be honored by them as though it was God itself. And, and they don't realize that this was a, a PR move, or a, even you could call it a mind control operation by the Zionists. Uh, the beginnings of Zionism didn't, it wasn't just uh, towards the end of the 19th century, you know, we've, we've all uh, heard about that beginning of the Zionist movement, but the plan was there from even well before that, in the middle of the 19th century, uh, Cyrus Schofield was apparently hired by the, what, what do you want to call them, the, the proto-Zionists to produce a commentary on scripture that's now known as the Schofield Bible, and this seems to have really taken in a lot of American Christians. Tell us a little bit about where this Christian Zionist uh, thing is coming from. As you say, it's an, an errant offshoot, a non-Christian, in a way, errant offshoot of Christianity. It did spring up from a movement in England, or Scotland, let's say, uh, through someone named John Nelson Darby, who had a disciple in the United States named Cyrus I. Schofield. Schofield was a opportunist, young opportunist. He was a uh, self-proclaimed lawyer. He did a little bit of jail time, but he got away with most of the things he did. And he found a, a really good avenue for his ability, which was a form of, of bending Christianity. He is the editor of the Schofield Reference Bible, which in 1908 we believe, was massively influenced by the World Zionist Movement and probably funded by it, though that's never been properly proven. Schofield essentially wrote footnotes into a King James Version of the Bible that proclaimed a coming state of Israel, and he did that through interpreting passages in the Old Testament that called for, really, for the Messiah Jesus, as Christians know him. But Schofield essentially bent some of those scriptural passages in the book of Genesis to state that there was coming a state of Israel. And this, of course, was before there was even a Balfour Declaration. So uh, we don't know how Schofield would have imagined this, except had the Zionists been influencing him. Well, there's been some research suggesting that Schofield may have been funded by Samuel Untermeyer, who was a very wealthy Skyan of a Zionist family that's still just one notch below the Rothschilds. And, and there was apparently contact between them. Schofield was, as you said, kind of a, a low-grade con man with no visible means of support, and he was flying around, you know, I guess shipping around in those days internationally on somebody's money. I haven't actually read the original sources. I guess there's, there's a book by, uh, I think, Joseph Canfield that makes this argument. Have you read that stuff? Is it possible that Untermeyer was behind Schofield? Uh, yes, I, of course, read it, and Canfield is a friend, and he worked very hard to uncover some of this information. And a person named Lutweiler has written another book, which goes a little bit further. And I think they've gone about as far as you can to prove, and they have proven definitely that Schofield was influenced by Samuel Untermeyer, who was the most famous American Zionist and the most influential one. Untermeyer actually in the 1930s arranged for a economic war to be declared on Germany that uh, went a long ways towards stirring up World War II. Well, that's right. Isn't, uh, isn't there the famous headline from 
this uh, international Jewish newspaper saying that uh, Judea declares war on Germany, and this was like 33, I think? Yes, indeed, there is. It's a well-established fact that that actually happened. Untermeyer was very close to uh, Woodrow Wilson in the little earlier days, and he was uh, a lawyer of a very powerful law firm in New York is still there. He and Cyrus I. Schofield were known to be closely associated, but they mysteriously both kept it uh, to themselves. Neither one of them uh, wrote much about it. But in uh, the personal affairs of Schofield after his death, aforementioned biographer William Canfield uh, uncovered that Schofield was a member of Untermeyer's club. Untermeyer was the uh, chairman of the uh, committee that took in members, membership committee, and uh, that he stayed in that club uh, for a long time. And actually he went off into to Switzerland in 1908 to write the Schofield Reference Bible. So it was then published by Oxford University Press, which had never before published a book written by an American. Very curious thing. We don't know where he got the influence or where he rounded up the influence that got this done for him. But we suspect it came from Samuel Entemar. It isn't so necessary to try to prove this relationship was a hand-holding one. It's simply clear enough from the facts that came down that Schofield was carrying out an agenda, and that agenda has been carried forward in four or five subsequent Schofield Reference Bible editions. In each case, these uh, Schofield Bibles were published in the United States and distributed through seminaries, and they got a very powerful distribution through the seminaries. Uh, Many seminaries in the United States actually required seminary students to own a Schofield Bible and they actually taught from these Bibles. The religion that has become thought of as Christian Zionism is actually better known among scholars as dispensationalism. It actually involves approximately one, at least one third of all the Protestant denominations and it further has penetrated into Catholic individuals and into mainline churches such as that do not believe in this theory, but where the teaching comes down to them through well-organized international Bible study groups that operate independent of churches, but have a way of getting in churches and borrowing their facilities and borrowing their members. So the movement for Christian Zionism is extremely well-organized, and we suspect that uh, it's very well funded. You know about, uh, for instance, John Hagee, the most famous Christian Zionist, I'm sure. Uh, Kevin, do you not? Uh, yeah, tell us about him for listeners who haven't Well, John Hagee is a Texan in San Antonio, Texas. Our organization has actually gone down and done a vigil in front of his church. And we've done this in many, many churches all over the country, but very, very large churches. Hagee has um, somewhere around 5,000 members of this church. And he, back in the uh, 1990s, late 1990s, was influenced by an organization that is basically run by Israel called Unity Coalition for Israel. You can subscribe to their newsletter and they will tell you exactly what they want Christian Zionists to believe. But it's strictly an Israel organization. It had a spinoff that became known as Christians United for Israel. Now that organization was American. 
and uh, John Hagee was promoted to be the chairman or president or whatever, and that operates today, and they go from church to church all over the country. They have uh, Jewish members. They have Israeli uh, delegates that go with them, and they put on programs selling the idea that the state of Israel is God's fulfillment of the Bible, so that instead of for Christians are supposed to universally believe that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the Bible. This is Christianity 101. And that he came as uh, promised. And that the promises were found, some of them are found in, in the Old Testament. Schofield and others simply wrote footnotes repeatedly. And some of these footnotes are very extensive. And they simply write in the name of the state, the state of Israel, And then, of course, in 1948, along came the new Jewish state. Now, now, wait wait a minute. You're saying that references to Jesus as the coming Messiah were changed and Israel was substituted. So these these people are basically worshiping Israel as their savior? Yes. They they sort of worship Israel as a Mm -hmm. Uh, co-savior. It's plugged in in such a way that Jesus is not really taken out. But uh, there are many places, uh, Kevin, in the New Testament where the later uh, successors, the Schofield, actually made additional edits to the Christian Bible. And there are some places where they had to actually refute the words of Jesus. Talk talk about idolatry. Worshiping the state of Israel, the most evil uh, state of our time and maybe of all time, as a false god. I mean, it doesn't get any more idolatrous than that. Uh, I'm afraid that's right. I wish I could say otherwise, but it's subtle, but it does come out that way all the time. And it's it's so ingrained into these, remember I said about one-third of the Protestant church members, maybe. Maybe the number might be in the 50 million or more. Uh, some people say 70 million people are influenced by this. I think it's probably true that there are that many that are subtly influenced. Uh, we have people coming all the time to us who have been involved in Christian Zion's churches and they saw this conflict, as I did at one time, and have basically asked us for explanations of how this happened. So you do have an idolatrous situation in these churches where they, and among other things, they believe that our nation will be cursed if it does not properly bless the state of Israel. Huh, and then, of course... In a sense, you know, they, they say that about people, too. They basically say everybody who doesn't kowtow to Israel is going to be damned and have lots of terrible things happen to them. And then when somebody in Congress, for example, doesn't kowtow to Israel, something bad does happen to them. They, they, a primary opponent shows up and gets them thrown out of Congress. Or in some cases, their planes go down, as happened to Paul Wellstone, who's a very noble Jewish man who was something of a critic of Israel as well as of the Israeli-sponsored 9-11 coup d'etat who wanted to investigate 9-11 and stop the war on Iraq, which which is, of course, really a war for Israel. Wellstone's plane went down. So bad things sometimes do happen to people who stand up to Israel. But, you know, those bad things, I suppose, are in a sense a kind of martyrdom that in the long run, I would say, is good for those people. Well, you're absolutely right. One of the footnotes in the Schofield Reference Bible that we talk about in our video, Tragedy and Turning, says that anti-Semitism is a sin. So they actually went back 3,000 years to something supposedly that happened 3,000 years that's thought, it's generally believed by 
by Christians, and it's in the book of Genesis, which uh, Muslims believe a good part of the book of Genesis. So this statement that a nation will be cursed if it does not provide enough love and affection for the state of Israel is written as a footnote into something that supposedly happened 3,000 years ago. How crazy. In today, our nation is cursed precisely because it's been taken over by Israel. Uh, that's why we wasted trillions of dollars on these wars for Israel, which are getting us nowhere, which are not even in the U.S. national interest. And we're being dragged deeper and deeper into these problems. The neocon Zionists, who are basically Israeli firsters, are now trying to drag us into war against Russia. Maybe they want the U.S. and Russia to, to kill each other, or maybe China too, so that the Israelis can come out of it as the strongest power. I don't know what they're doing, but whatever they're doing, it's obviously wrecking the United States. So, you know, I think we'd be better off if we didn't bless Israel. I second what you said. We are generating another Cold War against Russia, but this time it's not so cold. We're actually talking about sending weapons of mass destruction, let us say, to uh, the Ukraine. Now, now, as a Christian, do you find it strange that... Just it wasn't it wasn't that long ago. Throughout most of my life, uh, or at least the formative part of it, Russia was the enemy because they were the godless communists, and that's why they were so evil. Well, today Vladimir Putin is leading a return to Christianity in Russia. He's speaking out on behalf of traditional Christian family values. Actually, Russia is far more friendly to Islam than it was in the days of communism, which isn't saying much. But it's it, they're doing okay with religious tolerance. They seem like uh, they've, they're really a much less uh, problematic nation than they were in the heyday of communism, and yet somehow that's not taken into consideration. Communism ended, so why does Russia still have to be the enemy? That's a very good point, and what happened, of course, was there was a shift in the philosophical enemy from uh, Russian communism, or communism in general, which got downplayed during the 1990s, and we had the gradual introduction of the idea that Islam was the world enemy of the United States. And that was subtly taught, and of course not so subtly taught through Christian Zionism, because since Islam is regarded as the uh, traditional enemy of, of Israel, all that, all that John Hagee had to do was point out that Islam is... Israel's enemy, and this automatically made them uh, the enemy of 50 million Americans, let's, let's say, for just grasping a number. 50 million Americans who listen to not just Hagee, but to all the leading Christian Zionist leaders who promote these ideas very successfully. So we had a shift from Russian communism to Islam as an international enemy, and that, and that was built up very carefully over years. And, and I discovered it myself in the 1980s uh, in a Southern Baptist Convention church that I was a member of. Uh, most of the people who are in our movement have come out of Christian Zionist churches and have, have found their way out somehow and then found us and have come to us and said, how do I go back and deal with this? How do I deal with my parents, my friends, my brothers and sisters? literally brothers and sisters, wife sometimes, sometimes a husband and wife. It's curious that Jesus said that he would divide, that there would be a division in family, sometimes husband from wife. But it wasn't intended it would, that it would be over the state of Israel. Wow. Fifty million Americans, you said, are under the influence of this brainwashing program. That's pretty frightening because that's 
pretty close to the number that gets you a quorum in a presidential election. Exactly, Kevin. And, and that's why we've adopted Christian Zionism as our lifelong purpose, because uh, it, to us it's the only way that the problem in, for instance, Gaza can be solved. Our, the Gaza problem is not a, a Middle Eastern problem. It's an American problem. We are funding everything that goes on in, in Gaza. We are paying for almost every bomb dropped. And as we speak, our Congress is talking about appropriating more money emergency money to give Israel because they're spending money so fast on their uh, on this genocidal bombing program in Gaza that they're running out. Well, they pumped uh, all their ammunition into the children of Gaza, and so now the American taxpayers are ponying up to replenish their ammunition supply. Exactly, Kevin. That's going on. And this is our Congress. Of course, in our paper that we just wrote that you're referring to, I'm sure, is uh, we talked about the complicity of the press and how they've manufactured enormous lies and actually convinced the American public to believe them. Can I I express one? Sure. The biggest lie, that the the lie that Israel is dependent upon every day, is the lie that, that Hamas has a mighty fortress of rockets which they fire into Israel and that every Israeli lives in mortal terror of being hit by a rocket every day and spends half his time in, a, in, in, in an air raid shelter. The truth is so far from this that it's actually bizarre. Sometimes it makes me wonder why Hamas even fires the rockets, but most of the rockets fired out of Hamas are homemade. What is not homemade is a World War II ammunition with little TNT warheads fired out of, usually out of handheld mortars or tripods, and as of the 8th day of July, when the bombardment began, there had not been a casualty in recent months, in something like a year. Nobody in Israel had been hurt by a Palestinian rocket. The result was zero. And then on the 8th day, I think it was the 8th day or 11th day, it's, it's in our paper that we just published, Bloomberg Press carried an account of a filling station that got nicked by one of these so-called rockets. It caused a fire, and some guy got burned. And that was the first casualty from anything fired out of Gaza by Hamas. The first casualty. Whereas on the other side, we're seeing hundreds of children with their heads blown off, their guts spilling out. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's not even close. And now, thousands, and now thousands. At the present time, there have been three civilians killed. Uh, the number has tripled from, uh, from none. Well, it's gone from one injury to three civilians have, who have been killed. One of those civilians who was killed was not an Israeli citizen. He was a Taiwanese laborer. Israel imports Taiwanese labor to do their work, by the way. And he was in a field somewhere, and one of these stray rockets came down where he was picking whatever he was picking, radishes or whatever, and hit him or hit close to him, and he was actually killed. And he became one fatality, another fatality. Well, that's too bad. That makes me think that Gianni Vatimo, Italy's most famous philosopher, may be right when he says the Europeans should raise money to help Hamas buy better rockets. Uh, they could, they obviously need better guidance systems as well. They need as- a guidance system. <laughs> yeah, the, the rockets they fire are, in, in some cases, World War II mortars that have TNT in them. The missile system that the American taxpayers provided to Israel won't shoot these things down. It's only hit 
about 10% of the rockets. Well, that's that another up. lie. Mention, you're mentioning these lies that people in America have been fed. Mm-hmm. One of them is that they have this great Iron Dome system over in Israel. It turns out that's pretty much a hoax. Well, it, it's, it is and it isn't. The, the Iron Dome system is so sophisticated that the rockets that it's shooting at are too primitive for it to hit. <laughs> they don't go high enough to be hit, or uh, or they go too slow, or something. Uh-huh. And the, the scientists have have criticized it and said sometimes the anti missile missile goes off, but it doesn't kill the, the mortar shell because it has too primitive an explosive in it, and the warhead won't go off from the explosion. So the whole idea of the rocket threat is a complete total lie. It's true that it's too bad a Taiwanese laborer innocently working in a field somewhere, got killed, and it's too bad that the guy in the filling station got burned. But the truth is, there is no threat to Israel. And at the time this happened, there was zero damage reported. If there was any damage from these things they fired, in other words, houses destroyed or anything, they were never reported. Then three days later, the same media, Bloomberg News, carried a report written by an Israeli in that report, they said that a thousand homes had been struck by these rockets. Well, still no one killed, keep in mind, but now they've gone from no damage to a thousand houses that have been struck by these rockets. When there's never been any report of any houses struck by the rockets, they basically hit little or nothing. But most of these rockets are homemade. I've actually seen some of the rockets, not in person, but I've seen them in filmings. And they're made out of old sewer pipe and stuff like that that the people piece together as a protest. We liken it in our paper to the inmates in a jail having a revolt because they're not being fed and they throw their empty trays at the guards. That's essentially what the what the rocket program of the Palestinians really is. Mm-hmm. And it's really too bad. I, I actually agree with Fatimo that it's you know every decent person ought to be helping the Palestinian resistance get better armed so it could defend itself. Because as much as Jesus' teaching of turning the other cheek is the best possible solution for the best of possible worlds, uh, we're not quite there yet. In this world, people need to defend themselves against bullies and aggressors occasionally. And if there's anyone in all of human history that's had the absolute legitimate right and duty to defend themselves with force, it's the Palestinian genocide victims. It is. And in our paper that we've just done, we talk about genocide. And uh, Kevin, I hate to say this, but I don't want to be on a program without saying it. In our paper, we have concluded from some very good evidence that Israel's intent is literally genocide. Their intent is to eliminate all population from Gaza. This is uh, maybe the third or fourth invasion. Uh, I guess that you'd say it would be the third uh, invasion of Gaza. The previous one in 208, 209 killed about 1,400 people. They've also already gone way over that. There are members of the Knesset who have written plans for the annihilation of the people of Palestine. One of the plans that we wrote of in our paper, we discovered by accident, and once we discovered it, we were amazed to find that everybody in Israel knows about it. It's discussed openly there. It's a uh, leading member of parliament who's put forth this plan, and his name is Moshe Figlin. He calls it the solution, my outline for a solution 
You remember that term? Yeah, it sounds kind of like Hitler's solution. final solution. Doesn't it sound like that? For Gaza. And, and his plan has got seven parts to it. And if you read these seven parts, they essentially call for killing everybody who won't leave. And where he suggests they go is a place they can't go. Uh, he, he suggests they simply walk out and go to the Sinai. And then he points out that uh, he doesn't care if they can't go there or not. That's where they should go. So you, you kill them if they don't go there, and since they can't go there, I guess that just means he's planning on murdering two million people. I guess it means that whoever owns the Sinai is going to have to contend with them when they get there, if they ever get that far. This is actually put forth. It's being circulated on Facebooks in, in Israel. And uh, Moshe Figlin, he has just been appointed, just this last week, or two weeks ago, he's been appointed to the Foreign Affairs and Security Commission by the Prime Minister. Well, uh, Lieberman's in the government, too, isn't he? Lieberman is a well-known advocate of a final solution, ethnic cleansing of all Palestinians and all Arabs, both from the occupied territories and from the State of Israel. Exactly, and and he is the Foreign Minister for the State of Israel. He just concluded a visit to the United States where he was met with the president. You know, you know, we're told that you know terrorism by the enemies of the Israelis is a problem. How can all of these genocidal maniacs be running around not getting attacked if there are any you know anti-Zionist terrorists out there? Where is it? We need more. Right. Where are well, they? <laughs> yeah, uh, there's a female in their legislature who we also quote in our paper called Alette Shakad. Uh, Alechikad is is probably the, the most beautiful, physically beautiful female in politics in the world. She is a 38-year-old knockout. And she has proposed openly that all the women in Gaza be annihilated, killed, kill every mother, because they keep producing these little rats, she calls them. I think little snakes little is snakes, the term yeah. she used. Little snakes. These kind of things come from Israel, and we really can't believe they happen. But I think what we need to remember is that Elet Shakad probably served 20 years ago in the Israeli military. She may have well been involved in one of these bombing incidents in Gaza. Every female and every male in Israel has to serve in some form. When I was there in 202, I rode on buses, and I was amazed at how many women were carrying rifles on buses. So what you have is a dehumanizing process that goes on in Israel for every youth, every boy who graduates from high school, unless he has some particular dispensation that that gets him elsewhere. Or if he's not Jewish. They don't let the non-Jewish people go in the army. That's true. Basically, the Israeli army is an army of genocidal Jews dedicated to killing off all of the non-Jews. Well, I'm exaggerating they, a little bit, but not that much. They are trained to do that. In essence, they are preached to constantly the same thing that Christian Zionists are taught, and that is that the state of Israel is God's chosen people, and therefore they have an obligation before God to do what they do. And they do not have to worry about God's wrath upon them for committing genocide. It's implied. And when you have a population that's probably 90% now made up of people, except for the immigrants who were too old to be in the service, of course, when they came there, but almost everybody born 
in that state has gone through that indoctrination process. It's the brutality of compulsory military life that is taught to these people. And so is it any surprise that when they grow up and they end up in Parliament, they become callous to the idea of genocide? Well, you know, I had Barry Shamish on my show a few times. He's a very pro-Zionist, formerly Israeli journalist, who left after he uncovered some of the really dirty business going on at the highest levels of power in Israel. He's still a a kind of a right-wing Zionist, but he's at least opened his eyes to a lot of this corruption and evil in the Israeli power structure. And he argues that the real Zionist power structure is made up of people who are not Jewish. They're basically, they may be ethnically from Jewish backgrounds, but they're some weird combination of atheists, Satanists, and heretics. You know, going back to the false messiah, uh, Shabbatai Zevi, declared himself the messiah, told all the Jews to go to Palestine, and then when he was about to be executed by the sultan for, for raising trouble, he uh, came to Islam and saved his life. Then he went underground. And so this weird cult of Shabbatai Zevi is apparently a kind of satanic cult. They engage in sexual orgies. They hide all their practices. It's kind of a secret society. It apparently was uh, an influence on some of the offshoots of Freemasonry, such as the Illuminati, that have uh, pushed uh, a Zionist agenda and are, have been financed by the Rothschild family, the founding family of Zionism. So, you know, it's, it seems that many of the Jewish people of Israel have been brainwashed by a kind of a cult of Zionist, uh, satanic, Freemason, atheist types. They hate religion so much that they engage in satanic rituals, including ritual sacrifice of children, and this agenda may be partly why Israel has such a love of killing children, so I, I think that the, the Israeli nation really is run by, it's been founded by and run by Satanists. It's not really a Jewish state, it's a satanic state. And Barry, at least Barry seems to think that, although he, he wants it to be a Jewish state, but he's more and more facing the, the reality. Well, it is commonly thought, and I think believed, that most Jews in Israel are, are a-religious, and uh, that they are essentially non-religious and that religion plays a very small part in their lives. And the reason for that is, is the cynicalism of what they do. It, it's pretty hard to believe that there's a God who loves mankind when you are trained to go out and to the necessity of killing people. Well, that's partly due to the Holocaust. I, I, I took a course on the Kabbalah with Jacob Needleman, who is uh, the Penguin Arcana editor. He's, he's a very well-known advocate of kind of sort of strange to me, <laughs> alternative spiritualities, uh, but also some, some traditionalist ones as well. Anyway, yeah. uh, he said in the class that he thought that Judaism kind of died with the Holocaust. And Jews said, well, how could there be a God who's looking at us as his chosen people if he's letting you know Hitler do this to us? So there must not be any such God, and we're going to have to just you know, go out there and kill all of our enemies to survive. And so that, that's kind of the philosophy of Zionism. And it seems that there's even maybe a hatred for God uh, due to this Holocaust religion. And, and there are Israeli professors who have argued that the Holocaust has become a new religion that has become a substitute for Judaism. Um, and, and some folks believe that looking into the Holocaust revisionism field of studies in the long run might help address this problem. 
in that the Holocaust was at most uh, 6 million people in World War II. You know, this is the war that killed 60 million people. Uh, Eisenhower starved more than a million German POWs to death behind barbed wire. There's Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, the firebombing of civilians in Dresden. The Allies systematically firebombed German cities and murdered all of the civilians in those cities by fire, uh, which is what Holocaust means, a fiery death. This weird notion that we have that Hitler was the ultimate evil, the Allies were the good guys in World War II, and the ultimate victims were the poor Jews who had this, uh, you know, this out off the charts, undescribable, you know, kind of experience with their Holocaust, which is now sacred, and we have to build these Holocaust Museum temples to it where people go and worship this story. It's created this new false religion, another kind of idolatry that's tied into the idolatry of the state of Israel. And it seems like what, you know, whether or not the Holocaust revisionists are right that the Holocaust against Jews was not quite as extreme as it's been made out to be, it seems to me that we need to demythologize this Holocaust story and get rid of it as a, as a religion. It's not a religion. It's an idolatry. And, and to get rid of this idolatry of Zionism, uh, we need to stop idolizing the Holocaust. Does that make sense or not? Well, sure it does. Any false teaching is going to lead to trouble somewhere else, and that's exactly where we go with the notion that Christian Zionism is America's biggest threat. Because here you have a cult of people in our country who are uh, the most uh, thought of as the most loving and kind and honest and church-going people you can find. Uh, they're among our best friends. We get along great with them in business. We get along fine. They're moral in business pretty much as good as anybody. They're fine in almost every respect, except they have this incredible idea that Israel, it's okay for the state of Israel to slaughter people because they're God's chosen people. It's okay. Where do you lead this? If you take this opinion that one group of people are chosen, then how about you? Are you not chosen too, That since you know that? Well, it's not uh, a cra- that's a crazy idea, like genetically chosen, uh, you know, and the Jews aren't even genetically related to the original Jews. They're from, uh, from you know, they're Khazars from Eastern Europe. Uh, but what a stupid idea. I mean, obviously, in monotheism, the ch- God's chosen people are the people who submit to God and do, what, uh, do the will of God and act righteously. That's, of course, right. And it is bizarre. It is ridiculous. That's why we've taken the position that it really can be changed. And fortunately, there have been some mainline churches who have recognized this, but they're very slow to come by it because of the incredible pressure that's put on them, too. I'd like to mention one. It's recently in the news a lot. It's the Presbyterian Church USA. Now, the Presbyterian Church USA is one of the old Protestant lines that goes back to John Knox or someone like that. And it is kind of a stuffy old church, but it does not believe that there is any chosen people. It doesn't believe that the state of Israel is any different from any other state. They don't accept the Schofield Bible interpretations of what the scriptures mean. They basically go back to the original scriptures and they say, no, we'll stick with the New Testament and uh, refer to the Old Testament sometimes. And so this particular group, Presbyterian Church USA, has about 2 million members, and they actually produced a study guide on Christian Zionism. And they recommended uh, that uh, a faction in the church, let me say, recommended uh, a large faction. They recommended that the members, that the churches have uh, a eight-session study guide on 
Christian Zionism and the state of Israel and the Palestinian situation. And they were related together, so they had it all, they had it put together correctly. That church has been subject to tremendous criticism by Jewish factions, by Zionist factions. They've been lobbied against, uh, they've been called uh, radical, violent anti-Semites and vilified. Most recently, we've become aware, and we've written about this, Presbyterian Church USA, and about their books and so on, and we encourage them and try to encourage others to encourage them. Recently, we've been told that in my town, which is Denver, Colorado, the Jewish rabbis have been organized to go out and talk to all the Presbyterian USA church members. There's probably... 75 congregations in the metropolitan area that that I live in. So you have now rabbis going out and talking to them and trying to solicit from them a letter which recognizes that Israel has the right to the land they live on, given by God. And, uh, yes, isn't that that something? The rabbis are trying to browbeat Christians into saying that God gave the Jews this land so they can exterminate the natives. Right, they, they, that, that's exactly right. So this is the degree of organization that comes down on anyone who really resists. But we take this as great progress because uh, this is what we've been trying to encourage ever since we started our organization 10 years ago. And that's just outrageous. You know, technically, Chuck, I think you can make a case that everybody who's doing this pro-Israel advocacy is doing propaganda for genocide, which is a capital war crime. Maybe it's time yeah. to grab these rabbis and make some citizens arrests. <laughs> well, we think for sure it's time to encourage churches that don't believe in Christian Zionism to challenge churches that do. For instance, if rabbis can go out and talk to the leaders of Presbyterian churches, why can't Presbyterian pastors go out and talk to Lutheran pastors and discuss with them this common problem? Why can't this movement spread. Why can't a little spark that goes on in one or two organizations? And by by the way, there are some 15 Christian organizations who signed letters saying that the money given to Israel in foreign aid should be investigated. It is being used for genocidal purposes. There are 15 Protestant organizations that have done that. The Roman Catholics have not yet done it, but I have an idea that a lot of them believe it. So you actually have a movement going on within Christian Protestant churches that could be generated, and it's being fought viciously by the Zionist movement, and not just the Zionist movement, but organized uh, rabbinical synagogues are are involved in this, uh, Kevin. So we have a real war going on in our country over the minds of people. Can you imagine how fast something like this would spread if you had prominent pastors from mainline churches going into Christian Zionist churches and saying they wanted to talk to the pastor there about his mistakes, his errors in teaching. Might that not have impact? At the present time, what we do is we try to encourage individuals how to talk to other individuals, how a man talks to his kids if they've been caught up in a Christian Zionist church or, or vice versa. And we have both. we have it both ways. We have parents who are worried about their kids and we have kids who more often are worried about their parents. The kids have actually broken away from a Christian Zionist church, but their mom and dad are still there and, and they'd like to rescue them. 
and they don't know how to talk to them because they, because all they've been taught is Christian Zionism in that church. So this is going on, and it, it's, it's just, in our opinion is the most uh, important philosophical or faith-based argument that's going on in our country today is what will happen to the churches? What, what are the, where are the churches going to go? Well, maybe some of the listeners who are churchgoers could take this up with their uh, church uh, organization. And even if you're not a churchgoer, maybe you should be. You know, maybe uh, you could add something to your life by going to church a few times, getting to know some of the people there, and then talking to the pastor, the priest, the minister, whoever they have, and educating them about this issue. Absolutely. That's really what we need is laymen doing it. It's going to have to come from a layman movement. And keeping in mind that that's the way this has happened in the Presbyterian Church, in the Evangelical Lutheran Church, in the United Methodist Church, where you have very strong anti-movements against Christian Zionism, organized movements in those churches and, and others. There are other denominations as well. And the way it's happened is not from the pastors at the top, but from the congregation at the bottom. It's happened from missionaries who have gone to work in the Middle East, have gotten to know Muslims. By the way, our own film called Tragedy and Turning, part of it was made in a mosque, and it was filmed for us by an imam who uh, thought it was important enough that he saved the film. And when we needed film, we went to him and he gave us a film. So... The movement to change America has got to come through individuals who influence their church, and then once you get pastors who have been influenced, then they need to go out and influence other pastors in, in Zionist churches. It's great to see that this is going on. You know, guys like you kind of saved my faith in Christianity. As, as a Muslim, you know, obviously I, I, wasn't, I didn't get uh, hooked by Christianity in my spiritual questings. And frankly, since 9-11, seeing what's happened to this country and to the Christian world in general, which I see as being largely just being, it's been brainwashed by these uh, satanic Zionists, I haven't had a real high opinion of uh, the world's Christians. But it's great to see a movement keeping the spirit alive, uh, keeping some morality and ethics going in Christianity. Well, we're happy to do it. It's just just a calling, and uh, it basically becomes our form of Christianity. But uh, it's also produced great results for us in terms of, of meeting a lot of people we really know and love who are Muslim and uh, uh, and a lot of atheists. We have a, a lot of people who come to us who are, have lost all faith in, in organized religion of all kinds, and they basically sort of get it back a little bit by seeing that there is a pattern to what maybe what God intended them to do in their lives. You know, I, I believe in not being too hard on the atheists. You know, one thing about a real atheist is that at least they're not an idolater. You know, somebody who, who worships a false god or a really badly false image of God, like somebody who's worshiping the state of Israel, is an idolater of the worst kind, whereas an atheist who's seeing the world clearly and honestly as it exists and wants, is trying to do good, I would argue is being at least partly inspired by God. I would, mm-hmm. I would say that atheist is better off than the, uh, the guy who's worshipping Zionism. Yes. Well, we actually wrote a letter for Presbyterian pastors because we are, we're not sure they know exactly what to say to a rabbi. So we composed a little letter, and we're trying to circulate that to Presbyterian pastors. Of, Here's what you say to a rabbi. What you say to a rabbi? Do you teach them a little Yiddish? Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. vey, rabbi, what the hell are you guys doing over in Palestine? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, that doesn't, Netanyahu, that guy has chutzpah. 
Yeah. Well, actually, in dealing with this problem, you and I have a conversation on one level, but in dealing with this problem, we pretty much uh, we pretty much tell people that they have to actually resort to Christian scripture and to the actual words of Jesus. And actually, when I speak in mosques, I actually do refer to the words of Jesus. And I don't find that I have any problem talking to Muslims about what Jesus thought people should do. Well, Muslims love Jesus. You know, Mark Silvander has really picked up on this. You know about his work? Mark who? Mark Silgender. He's a former congressman from Michigan. Oh, no, I don't mind. He's a very good Christian brother who used to hate Islam. He walked out of a prayer breakfast when he was in Congress because it was being led by a Muslim. And then somebody tapped him on the shoulder and said, hey, you know, you should look into the Quran. It's actually pretty Christian. And so he went and read it, and then he went back and read the Bible in the original Aramaic and found that the Quranic version of things is actually closer to the original Bible than most of what you get in American churches, which are going through the Greek translation, and, and who knows, maybe then the Schofield translation. So, so Mark Siljander has been going out bringing Christians and Muslims together, and it's quite a tale. The Zionists had him arrested on false charges and imprisoned him, and then he was condemned to die of cancer in prison from an untreatable cancer, and miraculously he became the first person in history to recover from that form of cancer, and he's still out there bringing uh, Christians and Muslims together. So, you know, based on the fact that we share, you know, 95% of our approach to religion, which isn't true with Judaism. I mean, you know, in the Talmud, they're boiling Jesus in excrement, Al-Dubillah. So it's, right. it's strange how that this everything's been turned upside down. I'm not saying Judaism is bad, and not all Jews buy those parts of the Talmud. The Talmud is just rabbis arguing, but... It's still, you know, the, the real picture of how these religions operate in, in real life, what their beliefs are, and how they get along and don't get along, is being just systematically suppressed and distorted. So, you know, guys like you and, and Mark Silgender are doing a fantastic job uh, working on, on helping deprogram some of these Christians. Well, that's our, that's our mission, and it all started out with me actually being in one of those churches, although I hadn't quite bought into the to the line, I sort of accepted it, and this is the way a lot of uh, people are in in these evangelical or dispensational churches. They don't really, it doesn't really register with them, but that's culturally where they are. Maybe they sing in the choir, maybe they raise money for the church, maybe they do all kinds of things. Some of the uh, teachings don't register with them, but they just kind of let it pass by them because the family's happy there, and they don't realize that they're being damaged by it. And they they won't realize that until they're called upon to support some ugly war that they don't want to support, or uh, or that uh, they, they or that they see that their church is not is actually supporting Israel's genocide against the children of, of Gaza. So it becomes pretty clear to them if they ever get that through their heads. Well, you know, most, so most people aren't really paying attention, unfortunately. But yeah. the ones who are paying attention are are coming around more and more to your viewpoint on this, and let's hope that you can tap more people on the shoulder and get them to pay attention. Well, we've reached the end of the hour. Uh, Charles Colson, I appreciate your excellent work. Uh, send people uh, to your website. It's, it's whtt.org. We hold these truths. And uh, can people get involved there? Certainly can. We're happy to have them involved. And, and by the way, I'm Chuck. I go by Chuck often, and, it, and, it, and it's Carlson. There is a Chuck Colson, too. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, Chuck <laughs> Colson was Nixon's guy. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> right. Okay. Well, hey, thank you so much. It's been a, a wonderful discussion. I uh, wish you the best. God bless you. Uh, thank you. To talk to you again soon. My pleasure, Mike. It's, it's, uh, Kevin, it's really good to uh, get to know you. Yeah, likewise. All right. Bye. Bye.